All right, so it has been a while since I've been up here, and um, Philip came into my office, and he said, hey, bud, we need to get you back up there. And I said, okay, well, I'll speak on Lazarus, because I knew that it was coming up. Uh, it's definitely my favorite story. And so that's where we're going to be today. It's in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them out. And we're going to go ahead and call up Madeline. No longer Maddie, but Madeline. <laughs> Which is, I guess, might as well be Maddie then, huh, Maddie? All right, so we're going to go ahead. Uh, Maddie's going to read John chapter 11 for us. Thank you. Yes. Madeline. Madeline. Sorry, yeah, Madeline. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to, to, to Judea again. And, this and the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, 
Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and that, and, but I said that on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face unwrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered about. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying one to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Thank you, madam. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this is uh, something that is really, really hard for us to believe with our human minds, God, that you can take someone who's been dead and that you can give them life, Father, but that's what you've promised all along, God. So I pray today, Father, that... um, If we are experiencing any difficult times, God, I pray that you would teach us something today about what you say about our our times, Father God, about the struggles that we have. Father, I pray that you would begin to heal hearts, that you would begin to grow faith in this room, Father, and that uh, the words spoken today uh, would land on good soil, Father, and that uh, you would show us how much you love us, God. God, we thank you for being here, and we just pray that you would have your will in this this message, and uh, thank you so much for loving me, God loving us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I said, it's a lot of verses, right? A lot of stuff going on, and we can spend months in this one chapter here. Um, I was studying for it, and I got like eight pages in, and I was on verse three, and I'm like, oh shoot, I'm gonna have to cut some things out. Um, And so we're just gonna touch on a few things today, and I'm not gonna lie. Okay, uh, do we have any A's fans in here? All right. How hard is it studying about the resurrection when your team just gets kicked out of the playoffs the way that they do, right? I was like, if he can do it with Lazarus, he can do it with the A's. But uh, they are still dead this year, so that doesn't count. So uh, this miracle is actually the seventh miracle that John records. Um, And interesting thing about John, John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And what does a sign do? A, A sign points to something. Uh, and explains what it is, and that's exactly what Juan, what Juan, Juan whoa, that's exactly what my Mexican's popping out. Uh, <laughs> that's what exactly what John wanted to do uh, in, in this in this gospel. 
Uh, I want to go ahead and explain or just kind of revisit the first six miracles or signs that John recorded. The first one was in John chapter 2 when he turned water into wine. Second one was in John 4 when he healed a nobleman's son. John 5, he heals the lame man. John 6, he feeds 5,000 and he walks on water. In John 9, he restores the blind man's sight. There is one more miracle that, we, uh, that John does record, but it's done a little bit more in private. It's done in the dark. Do you remember when Peter cuts off the ear of the, of the guard that came to arrest Jesus and Jesus puts it back on? But again, it wasn't so much of a public miracle, a public sign, but it did happen. So I just wanted to give that one an honorable mention really quick. But this is an amazing chapter. It's a chapter where we fully see God in action as a human being, right? Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same time, and it's here where he displays it. This is his last public miracle, okay? Before the resurrection, it's his last public miracle. And something really important happens here. In, In chapters 1 through 11, we see the ministry of Jesus, right? We see all the signs and the miracles and the wonders that he does, uh, his teachings, the relationships that he builds. And yes, he does kind of irritate the Jewish leaders, and they do want to arrest him, they do want to stone him, but he always escapes, he always gets away. That changes after John chapter 11. After John chapter 11, it's the last straw for the, for the Jewish leaders. This is where they say, you know what, we're going to arrest him. We are going to, to crucify him, and we are going to bury him. Because too many people are following him. So this is a very important part in in our study of the book of John. Uh, Last week, Philip shared with us about how Jesus had just escaped uh, being stoned. And in John 10, uh, verse 40, he says, He went away again across the Jordan to to the place where John had been at first, and there he remained. So he has a run-in with the Jewish leaders. He, He is about to get stoned and arrested. He gets away. And he goes back to where John the Baptist first started baptizing people and sending a message saying, hey, there is one to come. And so he's back in this place, and many people are coming to Jesus. Many people are believing in him. It's like he's, he's uh, harvesting all the work that John the Baptist has put in. And so here's where we start chapter 11. Verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus. He was ill. So, okay, we learn that there's a sick man named Lazarus, and it's got to be pretty important because they're sending messages to Jesus saying, hey, he's sick. Um, He's the brother of Mary and Martha, and they live in the village of Bethany. Now, here's an important detail. They keep mentioning Martha all the time, and she is a big part of this story. But something amazing happens. Uh, John here mentioned that Mary anointed Jesus' feet. But John doesn't record this fact until the next chapter. And so John is actually writing this book around 50 to 60 years after Mark and Matthew have been circulating around. And so he's writing this book almost with the, with the assumption that people have knowledge of these two books. And Matthew says something amazing about what Mary did to Jesus when she did that. Uh, so Matthew 26 it says, uh, Mary pours out a very expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And some of the disciples are upset because they wanted to, they said, well, we could have sold that perfume and we could have gave them the money to the poor. And Jesus says this, verse 12, he says, in Matthew 26, he says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, 
in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That is a pretty big statement, right? Jesus says, forever, wherever my gospel goes, this act of love is going to be remembered. And so it was a very, it would have, the story would have gotten around in Jesus' time. People would have known who Mary was. And so we can see later on how that plays a big part in the funeral that Jesus is about to ruin. Okay? Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, him who you love, he whom you love is ill. Have you ever prayed that way? God, him, him, I can't say that. I keep saying it all the time. He whom you love is ill. That's really hard for us to understand. She calls him Lord. He's the ruler of all. He's in charge. And she says, the person that you love is sick. The question I ask myself all the time, especially when hard times come, is, but God, I thought you loved me. Right? Have you ever asked yourself that question or asked God that question? Man, this is a really, really hard time. I don't understand it. God, why are you letting this happen? I can't bear what's about to happen. I can't even, I mean, I think about, I have a friend. Uh, they had a child, and the, the baby was alive for four days. And it died on the fourth day. And um, his name was Giuseppe, and it was a guy that I used to work with when I worked at C28. And uh, I just, I think about that, and I couldn't imagine there's no way that I'd be able to get through something like that. And just last week, he posted a picture of the baby, and I actually thought he had another baby. But what he did was he posted a picture of the baby that had passed away. And underneath it, he commented every story of how that, that trial, that hard time, and what God did in that hard time brought 12 people to Christ. And I was just like, wow, what a great attitude. You know, I would be ready to, to curse God, I think. You know, I, I haven't been there yet. I hope I never have to be. But he turned a bad situation and, and allowed God to show his glory through it. See, Jesus tells us in John 16 that we'll have troubles in this world, but to take heart because he's overcome the world. Mary and Martha are going to create an atmosphere for Christ to work through their pain to bless other people. So the sisters, again, verse 3 says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom, oh my gosh, he whom you love is ill. In the middle of this hard time, they model for us how to approach Jesus. First, they pray. Right? Isn't that what sending a message to Jesus is? It's praying. Right? And, and if you guys are anything like me, that's not always my first step. Right? When something goes wrong, I already go into to macho man mode, and I think, okay, how am I going to fix it, right? How I, I remember uh, going through premarital counseling, and, and uh, the counselor was like, you know, your wife doesn't want you to always fix things. I'm like, well, she's going to hate me because that's all I try to do. <laughs> and that hasn't been true, right, babe? Okay. <laughs> but what do we usually do? We, we try to run to our capabilities, the things that we can do. We try to wrap our minds around our circumstances and say, well, figure it out. That's not what they do. I mean, have you guys ever said this? Well, I guess there's nothing left to do but to pray. Have you said that? How much would that offend Jesus, right? It's like, it's like saying, uh, hey, I need to take a, a picture of the most beautiful person in the world, and I've asked everybody but you, will you do it? 
you're not going to be too happy. Right? Think about the way that we approach God during hard times. It's the first thing they do. They approach Jesus, they send him a message, and they don't explain much. All they say is, the one that you love is ill. How do we react when hard times come? A lot of times my prayers sound like this. They say, they sound like, God, I know I've messed up. He's like, duh. God, I know I'm not perfect, but I go to church. He's like, Joe, you're on staff. Right? Yes, I am. And what I start to do is I try to justify why he should even listen to my prayer. You guys ever do that? God, I serve. I give. I try really, really hard. And the hardest thing to do is find confidence in a prayer like that. Because what we have staring us back in the face is every place that we've messed up. Every failure that we've ever had. They don't pray like that. They say, the one whom you love is ill. What they're really saying is, Jesus, the one that you put your name on has a need. The one whose sin you've come to forgive and completely do away with, they need you right now. The one whose only hope is the mercy that you might show him. They remind themselves of what he's done. They pray with the gospel in mind. How much more confident can we be in our prayer when our hope is based not on what we've done or accomplished, but on the promises of the gospel? The fact that Jesus came and fulfilled all the requirements for our acceptance before the Father. Mary and Martha know this about Jesus and their prayer life shows it. Now, I'm not saying that we should never go to Jesus humbly and say, God, yeah, God we are sinners. We have messed up. There is definitely a time and a place for that. But what do our prayers say about our relationship with him? We have, we have two choices when we pray. We can either pray on the basis of his faithfulness to us, or we can pray on the basis of our half-kept promises to him. Where are you going to find the most confidence? Verse 4 says this. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus sends a message back. It's prayer. Right? Prayer is not completed until it's answered. It's not just a one-way conversation. He speaks back. And so he sends this message back. And he makes a promise. This illness does not lead to death. But it's through the glory of God that, that he might be glorified. So already in verse 4, we see why Lazarus is going to go through this trouble, through this difficulty. Right? And I want you guys to keep in mind... We, we know the end of the story, right? We know the end of the story. It's almost like this death isn't that bad because Jesus raises him in about 30 verses. So let's just wait till we get to that point. But what about you and I? When our book isn't written yet, when we go through that hard time, what do we say about our faith in him, about our prayer? There are two things here. Jesus says, I'm going to show his glory. And what he means is I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. All right, that, that's kind of on the surface. But underneath that, he's talking about the fulfillment of his glory. 
and that's on the cross. Remember I told you in the beginning that this is kind of the last straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the, the Jewish leaders tolerating Jesus. Jesus knows that going in. Verse 5, he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. All right. One of the commentaries, well, actually, a few of the commentaries that I said, that I read, uh, said that this translation kind of wimps out. Basically, what it says, if you're reading it in the original language, it says, Jesus loved Lazarus. He doesn't mention Mary or Martha or anybody. He said, but he loves Lazarus. And so he stayed put until he died. That raises a lot of different questions, right? He loved him, so he stays put until he died. Now, in this verse, again, like in this chapter, we can go back and forth and spend a whole bunch of time. But when it talked about how, when Mary said, the one that whom you love, she had this phileo love. It's like a friendly love, right? And this, uh, this agape love is the one that he uses when... Um, sorry. Yeah, when he says because he loved Lazarus. And so it's a, it's a different kind of love. It's like a creator love. And so Jesus doesn't get up and run to his side, but he waits until he dies. He delays to the point where our human minds can no longer see how he could possibly fulfill his promise. He's getting ready to, to stretch our faith. That's what he did, is he promised that it would not end in death. Verse 7 says, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were, not, were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. All right, uh, this is just like Jesus, right? I don't know if Jesus ever does this to you, but have you ever just been really comfortable? Right? Your walk is going really, really good. And then all of a sudden, he'll just put something on your plate, and you're like, oh, dang it, I don't want to do it. It happens to me all the time. All right, you got to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They're, they're hanging out with Jesus. Ministry's going really well. And then all of a sudden, he gets this message that someone's dead or someone's sick back where they almost just got killed. And he does nothing. They're like, yes, we don't have to go back. All right? And then Jesus pops up, and he says, hey, guys. We're going back. Their heart must have just dropped into their stomach. It's like their worst fear, right? They were all afraid. But we'll get killed. You'll get killed. They tried to kill you. We can't go back. So we have these two groups. We have this family of two sisters that was praying that Jesus would have been there. And then you have the people that are closest to Jesus praying to not go back a perfect opportunity for Jesus to grow someone's faith. They both want the opposite things. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeing, oh, I'm sorry, we already said that. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he, is the light, because he sees the light of this world. But anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Verse 12 says, The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
These verses are actually reassuring, right? When we read it, it's almost like, oh, what does it mean? Well, there's the obvious, right? If you walk at night, if you don't have any light, you'll stumble because you can't see where you're going. But Jesus is saying something different here. See, the way that they used to measure the hour of the day is they would have a sundial. They would separate it into 12 parts. And at sunrise, whenever we got that first shadow, that would be the first hour. And so as the day went along until sunset, whatever, whatever section that the sundial was hitting would be, if it hit the fifth hour or the fifth section, it would be the fifth hour. And so what Jesus is saying is the day is going to be the day. There's nothing that you can do to extend it. There's nothing that you can do to shorten it. There's absolutely nothing. When he says that, he's referring to his life. He's saying, look, there's no precautionary measure that we can take, that I can take, that it is going to extend my time here. There's also nothing that an enemy can do to me to shorten my time here. My time is going to be my time. And it's this confidence, it's this reassuring statement saying, we'll be okay until my hour comes. Jesus was on a mission, and nothing was going to stop that mission. We all know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Nothing was going to stop this mission. His time was going to be his time. Verse 15 says, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. He says, for your sake, I'm glad that, you, that I was not there, so that you may believe. Speaking to his disciples. These men were going to be responsible for sharing the gospel when he was gone. They're the ones that are going to be the beginning founders of the church. They're the ones that are going to have to need the faith. They were going to have to know that he was stronger than death. If anybody, he needed their faith to be at a point where even when death is staring him in the face, they had to know that he was greater. And Thomas, like this courageous pessimist, he's like, well, then let's just go die then. <laughs> right? Poor Thomas. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. All right, now there is a tradition, there is a thought in Jewish, Jewish culture that um, when a person died, their spirit hovered over their body for four days. And so the fourth day is significant because even according to their tradition, the spirit's gone. All right, it's been four days. And so even if there was a possibility that his spirit was still hovering around, well, that's not there anymore. It's been four days, his spirit's gone too. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews who had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Uh, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Something to know about a Jewish funeral back then was that it lasted about 30 days. The first seven days were specifically meant for mourning. They would hire 
professional, professional mourners to come in. And they would hire them to say, hey, help me mourn. And it was primarily women. Women would, uh, every opportunity that you had, you would go back to the tomb. You couldn't eat until the body that had passed away had been buried. And so they didn't wait long. They weren't like the Egyptians where they embalmed bodies and tried to preserve them. As soon as they died, they sprinkled them with some spices, tried to make them smell good, wrapped them up, and put them in a cave. Right? And then after they were put in the cave, they would have this meal. And again, family, friends, strangers, whoever knew of this family's loss would just invade the home. And they would help them mourn. And, and that's just totally different from what we do today, right? We go to a funeral. It's maybe a couple days after. We have a potluck, and then we kind of just sometimes leave the family to kind of mourn and go through it. But that's not what's happening here. Listen to what she says. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I wouldn't have said that. If I'm being honest, I wouldn't have said that. This is the first time she sees Jesus after he promised her brother wouldn't die. And she just buried him. The first words out of my mouth would have been, liar. You lied. He's gone. Why would you even make that kind of promise if you couldn't keep it? He says, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now. He has this vulnerable confidence. And what she's really saying is she's saying, Jesus, I know what it looks like to me. I know how I see the situation. I know how possible, how impossible it is for me to bring him back. But that doesn't matter because you are. You're capable. Verse 23 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We can spend forever breaking that verse down. I am the resurrection and the life. Like, I don't even know if we'll ever fully understand that. But what he is saying, he says, I am the life. It's another great I am statement. Reminding her he is the power that gives everything life. How hard is it to believe this? What kind of faith does it take to remind yourself that, yes, Jesus does get life, but I'm still dealing with death? If anyone in this room has lost a loved one recently, you know exactly how that feels. It is hard with death staring you right in the face, but yet she believes. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, I, I actually skipped Jesus' encounter with Mary, um, just for time's sake here, but it's basically the same thing. She comes up and says, Jesus, 
if he would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And you kind of get the feel that Mary and Martha had had some conversations about Jesus before he gets there, right? It says that Jesus wept. You know, when I first read this, I thought that it was just the people around him that made him sad. Right? And we obviously know that he's, he's lost a friend. Right? Lazarus and Mary and Martha would, would host Jesus every time he'd come into town. So he cries at a funeral just like any one of us would. But in looking at the way that he mourns and just doing some research, you find that he's not just mourning for the loss of a friend. But he's mourning because sin and unbelief are wreaking havoc on the world that his dad created. And this town is right on the road to Bethany, or right on the road to Jerusalem. Would have had thousands of people coming through. And Jesus comes to this huge funeral because, again, Mary was very popular. And all these people around him represent an entire nation that just have no belief in him. And it hurts him. I mean, you think about that, like, why would he cry? Why would he cry? And we have the end of the story. Why not just walk in and say, watch this. Strut up to the tomb, knock on it a couple times. Hey, get out, Lazarus, let's go. Why not just do that? See, the, the Greeks, and any Greek reading this would have been blown away by this because the Greeks... The word that they use for their gods is apatheia. And it basically means not able to feel emotion. And they thought that if we could hurt the heart or, or, or the emotion of a god, then he actually couldn't be God. And so for them to see that John writing this story, saying that Jesus was weeping because of the grief that he felt from his people, that just blows their mind. That his heart was so wrapped up in our heart, with our heart. Timothy Keller puts it like this. Probably the first quote you guys have ever heard from Timothy Keller. But it says, we're specks of dust compared to the great God of the universe. And yet when we hurt, we create grief in the heart of the king of kings. No other religion believes that. Verse 36 says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man? Or could, could he who had, I'm sorry, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I think they get it wrong. It says, see how they loved him. I think Jesus loves him. Not past tense, but present. His love isn't finished, but his love is there and it's present and it's about to do something. It's about to change the situation. And he's got everyone around him not believing. He's got the Mary and Martha who just said, if you would have been here, then he wouldn't have died, right? They're watching him at, in front of this tomb. Then they have the, the pastor buyers going to Jerusalem for the Passover. They're there watching. They have the people that are there to attend the funeral. They're there watching. Right? It's so different from when Jesus heals somebody and says, don't tell anybody. 
right? And then he has his disciples there. All these kinds of witnesses. And that's where we're at in verse 36. He says, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid across it. This was a different type of being deeply moved. In the Greek, it's the same word that they use to describe a roaring lion. He came to the tomb with anger and rage. Not mad at God or Mary or Martha or even unbelief, but he is fed up with death. B.B. Warfield said it this way. He says, Jesus advances to the tomb not weak and sniveling, but as a champion prepared, preparing for conflict. John uncovers the heart of Jesus as he wins our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but with fiery, fiery wrath against our enemy, death. And with all the people watching, Jesus says, take away the stone. If you guys don't know, that is my favorite verse in the Bible. My absolute favorite verse. It took faith to move the stone. Right? Martha says it here. She said, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, to him, uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Right? If I took any single one of you to a funeral right now, and we got in front of a tomb, and I said, go ahead, open it. You're not going to do it unless you really believed. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Again, with everybody watching, he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped up with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He kept his promise. But in doing so, he sealed his fate. He knew that by ruining this funeral, that it was promising his. And these last nine chapters in John are going to show that to us. But he did what any hero would do in any of the fairy tale, um, fantasy, monster, saving hero movies that we read and see. What he does is he snatches us, the helpless victim, out of the grasp of death, out of, away from the monster, and he gives his life instead. Snatching us away from the hands of death by giving up his perfect life, keeping his promise that we will have eternal life, being reconciled back to God once and for all. You guys, worship team, you guys can come back up. This is the last straw. The Jews hear this. It's funny, some of the Jews that see it, some of them accept Jesus. Some of them go straight to the Jewish leaders and say, guess what he's doing now? And the Jewish leaders say, you know what? That's it. Many people are going to come to believe him. We have to do something about it. And from this day until Jesus is killed on the cross, 
He's a wanted man. What do we do and how do we react when hard times come? Do we pray like we believe in the gospel? Do we see our hard times as opportunities for Jesus to glorify and to save other people? I mean, I bet if I asked in this room, I'm pretty sure most of us just weren't sitting around on a beautiful day and just accepted Christ. A lot of times, our salvation comes through a tragedy, through something hard. God wants your pain. He fills the pain. And he's the only one on this planet, the only thing on this planet that can do something with it. I'm going to end with this, uh, this poem from George Herbert called The Dialogue Anthem, The Christian Death. It's a conversation between a mortal man and death. It says, Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Death says, Alas, poor mortal, void of story, go spell in red how I have killed thy king. Oh, poor death. And who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Death says, let losers talk, yet thou shalt die, and these arms shall crush thee. Mortal man says, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. He's finished it. Even when death is staring in the the face, we have to have a vulnerable confidence in him. Let's pray. Father God, we don't deserve your mercy and we don't deserve your grace. And I thank you so much that you've sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sin so that I can be found righteous in your sight, reconciled back to you. Father God, help me realize that you want every part of my life. The good times and the hard times. And that sometimes you might let me go through hard things because you don't give a guaranteed pass through life. Hard days will come. Difficult things will happen. But what you ask is, you ask us to allow you to have your glory be shown through it. And to watch what you do with it. And instead of you being our last resort, be our first resort. The one that we run to as soon as trouble comes. Our refuge and strength, our fortress. And I pray for anyone that is going through a troubled time right now. That they would be encouraged by this story to know that even in death, your promises are always kept. That all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Help us love on the people that are hurting today, God. We thank you. We thank you that your son is powerful enough to defeat death. That he has the ability to lay down his life and he has the ability to pick it back up. Thank God for that all these things in Jesus' name.